This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, Amnesty International calls for Fiji's new government to overturn treason and sedition cases against political opponents. Solomon Islands moves to put safeguards to prevent an exodus of nurses. And farmers call for help as Papua New Guinea heads into a severe El Nino year. We'll have more on those stories coming up. First to Solomon Islands, where police fired tear gas on dozens of protesters after the Premier of Malaita province was removed in a vote of no confidence. Premier Daniel Suidani rose to international prominence as an anti-China critic following Solomon Islands' switch in political ties from Taipei to Beijing in 2019. The ABC's Kristen Rita Amanu-Leong was in the provincial town of Aoki to cover the motion of no confidence against the leader. It started with a peaceful protest through the streets of Aoki town. Premier Swedani's supporters calling for the no-confidence vote to be abandoned. In the provincial government's chambers, there was no sign of the Premier or his cabinet ministers. Only the opposition were there and they had the numbers. The majority needed to oust Swedani. Suidani's supporters say the vote should only have taken place after the High Court heard an appeal against the Speaker. Speaker Roni Butala didn't receive any written submissions from Suidani's non-attendance, which prompted him to continue with the motion an hour late. Usually when there is a motion... We, we, we make sure that the motion then go through the, the schedules of standing orders. Usually a motion goes through a schedule of standing order, after which a notice of seven days is being served. Unfortunately, I realized the executive and the premier wasn't here, so I sent my chief security to find out what the problem was. They decided to not attend perhaps due to their decision with the High Court ruling. Mr. Suidani's supporters say he filed a motion of appeal in the Solomon Islands High Court questioning the Speaker's decision to allow the no-confidence vote to be held. But Speaker Roni Butala defended this stand. My office is in the view that any appeal on any decision must be notified to my office. I haven't received any notification from the High Court, so I presume there's nothing wrong. He says people need to know that the Attorney General's office is the right place for him as a teacher by profession to seek advice on matters dealing with his provincial government. I have no legal advisor here. I have no legal advisor here from the province to uh, advise me, so I was seeking advice on these things that, that might think happen. The obvious thing that from now, happen. the deputy premier becomes the acting premier. 
but it was at this moment with the end of proceedings that tensions spiked. Mm-hmm. Then... Police fired on dozens of people with tear gas. There were no injuries or damage to property reported and police were able to contain the outbreak of violence. For locals living in Aoki, they say they only wanted a peaceful process. The last vote of no confidence had too many people and it was a frightening experience. We are concerned because we support the Mara government, but we are here to see whatever the outcome is. We still support Sweden because he has our interest in his heart. Daniel Suidani has accepted the results of the no-confidence vote and a new premier will be elected. Kristen Rita Omanuli Yong in Malaita province with that report. In Fiji, those persecuted by the Frank Bainimarama regime are calling for clemency from the country's new government. Lawyers, human rights advocates and other vocal opponents fled the country while others were charged and convicted on offences like sedition and treason. But since the Baini Marama rule has come to an end, questions remain on what should be done to those who felt targeted by his regime. Liam Fox with this report. Frank Baini Marama and his right-hand man, former Attorney General Ayaz Syed Kayum, were never ones for criticism, constructive or otherwise. That was especially the case during the years of military dictatorship after Mr. Bainimarama seized power in a coup in 2006, but also when he became Prime Minister following the first post-coup election in 2014. Amnesty International's Pacific researcher Kate Schutze says one of the ways the former government shut down criticism was to use the law. We saw a lot of use of various pieces of legislation, like even the Media Industry Development Act, um, the Public Order Act, uh, use of sedition and use of contempt of court to really silence critics of government at the time. She says the new government should turn its attention to people convicted of offences like sedition and treason after voicing opposition to the former regime. Certainly for those people that were... um, prosecuted for political reasons or peacefully expressing those rights to freedom of expression, that they should be released or at least have some avenue to have those convictions um, reviewed and quashed. Fijian lawyer Aman Ravindra Singh represented dozens of people charged with sedition under the former government and was himself a prominent critic of the Bainimarama regime. He fled the country in August last year after being found guilty of the criminal offence of contempt of court in a case connected to civil defamation proceedings filed against him by Mr. Bainimarama and Mr. Kayum. I remain in exile from my country, so uh, the tables have definitely turned on me, and uh, right now this is life in exile. This is my reality at the moment. Mr. Singh has sought refuge in Australia while he appeals his conviction and a 10-month prison sentence. There's no doubt in his mind he was targeted because of his outspoken views, and says the new government, led by Sitavani Rambuka, should help him and others in similar situations. 
I feel the way forward is quite simple and straightforward. Uh, for those of us who stood up to the military dictatorship for the last 16 odd years, I think it's, uh, it's high time now to look at our plight. One of the positive ways forward would be to have a legislation in there which uh, would uh, make a finding on individuals. And if uh, the finding is that a person had been politically persecuted, then that person should be uh, freed from the shackles of what the dictatorship did. Amnesty International's Kate Schutze says the new government should go further than just addressing previous cases of political persecution. Going back and looking at past cases is one avenue of providing an appropriate remedy to those people most impacted, and they need to do that as a priority. But also we say these laws need to be changed so that they're not used in the future, um, you know, on the whim of any government to persecute people. Pacific Beat has sought comment from the new Attorney General, Siromi Turanga. Liam Fox reporting. Pacific Island countries could face unprecedented heat waves and drought in the coming year, according to new climate predictions. Early modeling shows the likelihood of an El Nino weather pattern developing in the Pacific Ocean later this year. And that could mean drought, food shortages, and more severe cyclones in parts of the region. And as Marion Farr reports, it could also push global temperatures above 1.5 degrees of warming, a frightening milestone for Pacific nations. On farms in Papua New Guinea's Morabe province, hot, dry weather is taking a toll. We've lost bananas, we've lost cassava, we've lost uh, sweet potatoes, anything that you can grow. The root crops, we've lost nearly everything. Maria Linaby, a farmer and founder of the PNG Women in Agriculture Foundation, says it's been a year-long struggle. We haven't had rain for nearly, nearly 12 months. You would have a small drop of rain, maybe about uh, five mils or something like that. And the rest of the day, it's hot, hot, hot. The impact is being felt far and wide. That's totally unusual, unusual. And it's affecting our cattle as well. There's no grass for them. There's no water at times for them. But Ms Linaby fears the worst is still to come. Early climate modelling suggests the Pacific could be heading into an El Nino period later this year. El Nino refers to a regional climate driver in the Pacific Ocean that is linked with ocean sea surface temperatures. Dr Wesley Morgan is a senior researcher at the Climate Council. He says in parts of the Pacific, an El Nino could bring some of the hottest and driest conditions ever recorded. In the Western Pacific, we're likely to see much lower rainfall in places like Australia, places like Papua New Guinea, and El Nino is traditionally associated with drought. In 2015, an El Nino led to severe drought and food shortages in PNG. In a country that relies largely on subsistence farming, Maria Linaby says the impacts can be devastating. The population is going to be affected because most of them They are farmers on the land. They eat from the land. She says the country doesn't have the right infrastructure to water crops during periods of drought. We are a tropical nation and we normally didn't need irrigation, but now, yes, we definitely would really suffer. And uh, you would see that there's an emergency call for food or for aid. But Dr Wesley Morgan says in other parts of the Pacific, an El Nino could create a different set of problems. Places like Kiribati, for example, 
there could be above average rainfall. So things like flooding might be more of a concern. And El Nino impacts on cyclones. So during an El Nino year, the cyclone season tends to be longer. And when cyclones do occur, they're more likely to be more severe. El Nino weather patterns are not new in the Pacific, but the impact of these events does seem to be getting worse. Dr Wesley Morgan says that's because of how the weather interacts with global warming. An El Nino is not caused by climate change, but the long-run trend is a warming trend, and, and that is an ocean warming trend. And so when you have an El Nino, it interacts with that long-run trend, and it means that when you have a cyclone, it is more likely to be more severe. Uh, when there are droughts, they can be more severe. Predictions of an El Nino this year are based on early models, and things could change. The modelling should become much clearer by around the middle of this year. But if it does happen, Dr Morgan says the impacts will be felt around the globe. We may well see the hottest global temperatures that we have ever recorded. If we have a significant El Nino event next summer, it is possible even that the world will go past the threshold of 1.5 degrees of warming above the pre-industrial average for the first time ever. That would be very significant. It's a frightening prospect for Pacific nations. Pacific island countries for decades have argued that 1.5 is a key threshold for the survival of island states. And El Nino could sound a warning that the window to stay below 1.5 degrees is really closing very fast. Dr Morgan says countries can begin preparing now. You will be preparing for how you manage your crops in a low rainfall scenario, if you're in Papua New Guinea, for example. But if you're perhaps in the Cook Islands, you'll be doing more to make sure your community is ready for the potential for a strong cyclone during next summer. In Papua New Guinea, that's something Maria Linaby wants to see. She's urging the PNG government to start identifying areas that could be hardest hit. And start working on emergency relief. You know, this is a real warning. PNG Women in Agriculture Foundation President Maria Linaby ending that report by Marian Farr. As demand for Pacific aged care nurses in Australia grows, Solomon Islands is trying to walk the fine line between sending workers overseas and ensuring local health systems are properly staffed. The departure of some senior nurses abroad is already having an impact on Solomon Islands Health Service. But as Dubravka Volader reports, authorities say they will not force health staff to stay put and work in the country. In Solomon Islands, nurses provide an essential service to the community and their skills are in high demand, both locally and overseas. To prevent a possible exodus, the Ministry of Health is looking at ways to better manage the selection process of nurses wanting to work in aged care in Australia or going to countries like Vanuatu. Director of Nursing Michael Larui says they want to avoid any negative impact on their health system. The government has, has a lot of concern for the services to the people of this country, and so we will try our best to manage it to ensure that uh, if there is migration of nurses, we will try and manage it to ensure that that does not severely 
and negatively impact on the health service. He says only a small number of senior specialist nurses have left, but it created a backlog in services for some time. He says with more planning to leave, it could create more problems. But at the same time, he rejected criticism about government planning to block nurses from going overseas. That is my only call to my nurses, that uh, I'm not in a position to stop any one of them. But uh, we will try and manage to ensure that uh, whatever happens it does not uh, you know, negatively have impact on the services that we provide. A statement from the Ministry of Health says it's aware of and respects the rights of individual nurses who may wish to resign and work elsewhere, including overseas. The ministry says in the event of a mass migration, they plan to prioritize nurses that are unemployed or retired. Newly registered nurses could also become part of the pool. Michael Laroy again. Once they complete the registration, if there are vacancies existing with the Somalian, yes, they can. If they are not in a vacancy, they will be also given the opportunity for them to, you know, explore joining this uh, this uh, group that's going to Australia. This will be put before them. Uh, we also we already planning this. As of December last year, there have been 35,000 Pacific workers under the Palm Scheme in Australia. The Australian Minister for Pacific Affairs, Pat Conroy, says aged care plays only a small part in the overall labour scheme, but it's set to grow. The goal is 500 by the end of this year. There's two trials pre-existing of about 80 workers and there's the goal of another 500 workers. Tourism is there in hospitality, but it's fair to say that the two most significant industries are fruit picking and meat processing. Mm. It's great to fill labour shortages, but also equally great to skill up Pacific workers and send home money. Some countries have been sending trained carers, while others have been sending nurses or both to work in aged care. Mr Conroy says it's up to individual countries to choose their pool of workers. The country where the workers come from decide how many workers they send and it's their right to uh, slow down a bit. Matthew Wally, the leader of the Solomon Islands opposition, however, says the government should have had better foresight. It's important uh, that... um some mid to long term planning takes place. Uh, in the immediate short term, there will be a drain on experienced nurses. If they resign and want to go, they will go. Uh, that, I think, is, is a pain that uh, the healthcare system will have to live with, uh, but then plan in terms of training and registration of nurses um, going into the future, um, anticipating that there will be leakage, that there will be some nurses. He says the country should accept and prepare for these scenarios. But with a high cost of living biting household incomes and the higher pay for overseas workers, it's to be seen how many may want to stay and how many may want to leave. Dubravka Voladere with that report. Local communities in the Fijian capital Suva are calling for a multi-million dollar Chinese development to be scrapped. Objectors say the Suva foreshore will be put at risk if plans for a marina and a hotel is allowed to go ahead. The president of the Suva Harbour Foundation, Sidel Whippy, says the degree of oversight for the project has been poor and there's been no community consultation. We're not the only ones who are concerned. There's a growing uh, community concern that the development would mean destruction of what is understood to be one of the last stand of Tiri, which is mangrove on the Suva Peninsula. 
and subsequent impact on biodiversity, bird life and marine life on the tidal reef of the peninsula. Together with the uh, PCC, which is uh, Reverend, led by Reverend James Bhagwan, together with Suva Suppers and many other of the um, local community, um, we're just strongly uh, want to, you know, make it known that the Suva Foreshore around Narcese is an important bird area for Fiji. It's important. Um, it's an important stopover destination for a number of migrant shorebirds that breed. Um, you, know, you know, fly to Fiji to escape the northern winter. There's many concerns that have arisen from this unfortunate development that um, has been plastered all over the media. Are you hoping that it can be done in a way that protects these birds' habitat, these mangroves, or do you want the development to be scrapped entirely? We're waiting for the consultation, which is planned for tomorrow. You know, we, we'd like to uh, push the 1985 mangrove management plan that included mangrove zonation plans for the mangroves within the Suvanavua corridor as locally important for Fiji and requiring the specific uh, special attention prior to development approvals. Mangroves themselves are relatively thin. However, they do play a huge role in coastal protection. Um, there's a concern that dredging of the area to create the proposed marina could lead to flooding in the Narcese area, particularly during storm events and when combined with hydrological alterations to the creek from the new bridge construction that's actually already almost complete around this area. So, um, you know, we're hoping that, um, you know, we, we have a voice at the uh, public consultation tomorrow um, mind you, uh, just to uh, reiterate the fact that uh, we've just opened today's local newspaper and the consultation's been deferred. Okay, yes. Well, I mean, I understand there have been other public consultations as well that have been planned. I'm not sure if they've gone ahead. Do you feel like local residents, um, community groups like your, yourself um, and the um, Suva Harbour Foundation have given been given the ability to lodge their concerns with um, Tian Lun Investment, the, the um, developers behind this uh, project? Uh, no, we haven't, um, and and that's definitely uh, you know the the concern. We um, we've not heard about this until the publication came out, uh, you know, from Fiji Village that was um, locally that we um, she the, the director of environment um, postponed the um, scheduled consultation for the twenty sixth of December. So, um, no, we haven't had the opportunity to address it and, and we all are eagerly awaiting um, that opportunity uh, which was scheduled for tomorrow and unfortunately has just been deferred. Mm. I mean, it's, it's this difficult balancing game that a lot of um, authorities, community groups, development developers themselves have to play when they bring in these new projects. There is the finance, the employment that I'm sure comes with big projects, big farm projects like this, but also um, the environmental concerns that you've been outlining here, Sidel. Is there a way for a compromise to be reached? Do you think that the project can go ahead while still protecting some of these important mangroves that you've outlined? Well, we don't want to stop uh, a development in any way or form. Um, we need them to uh, be able to... Um, focus on uh, the, um, you know, the process of getting these developments, um, the permitting processes, you know, we need 
the people in charge to take note of the community's opposition in this particular case. We need to be consultants, as in what's outlined in the uh, Environmental Management um, Act. Again, we, you know, we hope to have a voice at the uh, community consultation and, and be able to understand how this was even given consideration, you know, after four and a half years uh, and not have any community uh, consultations at all. So, um, again, we need the people in charge to take note of the community's opposition to these types of developments and, and we want them to follow the permitting processes. Sidel Whippy, president of the Suva Harbour Foundation, and she was speaking there to Priyanka Stranivasan. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Review for this week. I'm Evan Wasuka, and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from across the Pacific. Pacific.